0: Hi, I'm Rod Little, and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. This is Disrupt Radio. Probably one of the great humans of history. His mother says
1: he's a genius. He has these visions, and he's willing to execute them.
0: Donald Trump likened him to the guy who invented the wheel.
1: There's certainly been a lot of human costs at Twitter.
0: He is, to put it mildly, a somewhat divisive figure. He gave his daughter the name Exa Dark Sidereal and told the mother of five of his other children that he wanted a divorce by leaving a message with her therapist. Yes, it's Elon Musk. At one time, the richest man on the planet, peaking at a staggering $325 billion. But he has done his level best to lose a substantial amount of that dosh by acquiring Twitter. And annoying a largest proportion of its jabbering liberal users. Indeed it has been estimated that he has now lost more money than any human being in the history of our planet. But that's okay because he says he doesn't care too much for money.
2: He really doesn't care at all about money. He cares about doing something great. He is What is considered great, in his view, always correct and not sometimes misplaced? Probably not.
1: He has put his pedal to the metal and has accomplished beyond the scope of what most humans would contemplate merely because he believes it will contribute to the future of human civilization.
3: He's not a right-winger, he's not a left-winger, he's a libertarian. He, he is exactly what he says he is, and a free speech absolutist, and a lot of people are attacking that today, but politics isn't that important to him. It
4: takes guts, it takes perseverance, it takes a little bit of insanity, <laughs> yeah.
0: In October, 2022, Elon Musk spent 44 billion US dollars buying Twitter after being forced to go through with a sale he seemed to be getting very nervous about. Since he took it over, Twitter has mired Musk in controversy and undermined his business credibility. Ad revenue fell sharply as the owner displayed a marked lack of consistency regarding what people were allowed to say on Twitter.
5: I would first start with Elon and ask him, where are you? where are you going and how are you going to get there? And I think it's super important to talk to Elon Musk about what his master plan is, where he thinks he's going and how far and close is he to that, you know, element, whatever it is. And um, there's no question he's made so many controversial moves, especially recently. And are they studied and intentional or are they you know, just like shooting from the hip, kind of his way of doing.
0: That was Elisa Cohn, author of From Startup to Grown Up. Elisa advises CEOs around the world on how to run their companies better. She is one of the many observers who have questioned Musk's decision-making recently.
1: Twitter was in trouble. He saw an opportunity to buy it and um, put an offer on the table, which was accepted. And here we are.
0: <laughs> Randy Kirk is the author of The Elon Musk Method. He would like us all to emulate Elon.
1: What he saw happening uh, was a situation where the most free democratic republic in the world, the United States of America, was under assault by uh, individuals who believed that freedom of speech should be limited based on whether it hurts people's feelings or whether it uh, doesn't fit the narrative of those in power and that this was not acceptable in the United States or anywhere.
0: Rocket engineer Jim Cantrell was hired by Musk in the early days of SpaceX, the company that plans to take humans to Mars. Now openly critical of some aspects of Musk's behavior, he worked with him and championed him when people in power wrote him off.
3: I started talking about it about 10 years ago. I mean, there was a time in the early days, I have to tell you, when I first started introducing Elon to the industry and to, you know, senators that I knew and, and Pentagon officials I knew and, you know, two and three and four star generals and people like that. And some of them afterwards would say, why are you doing this? You know, this guy's a kook. He's a charlatan. He's a liar. Uh, you know, he's not, he's never going to accomplish these things and you're doing nothing but hurting your own credibility, you know? So I've gotten, I've gone full cycle with this right and and i stood by him then and i said no i think the guy's just i think he's going to do this and that's why i'm here i wouldn't be here unless i thought that of him and you know time has proven me correct but you know i think i think the success in some ways has gone to elon's head i have to think that that's why he does stuff like this
0: for many years elon musk was just another silicon valley upstart he had grandiose plans but no one took them seriously as his former marketing and PR executive, Teresa Tranakas told us.
4: I met him at at an industry event in the aerospace industry. It was a relatively small community back then. Again, we talk about the 2001, 2002 timeframe. So it was quite a few few years ago. And um, I always say back then, no one knew Who Elon Musk was. (laughs) He was, uh, nobody has heard of him. He was one of the many, many billionaires uh, living in Silicon Valley. He just sold off his stake in PayPal. He was sitting on 1.5 billion euros. And uh, he was talking about founding this uh, space company, taking people to Mars. And he was trying to find people. To believe in his dream, people that would join him in uh, making SpaceX bigger and <laughs> and making it from a dream to reality. So he was actually uh, part of the reason why he was going around these uh, these uh, conferences and events was to meet people from the industry, to uh, meet uh, from government officials, but also people that he could, uh, you know, attract to work for him um, and to, as I mentioned, to believe in his dream. Because back then, when when you heard the Story of space exploration technologies, it almost sounded unrealistic.
3: This phone call arrives out of the blue from this guy. I thought his name was Ian Musk. The way he was speaking, um, and uh, said he wanted to uh, prove that humanity could become a multiplanetary species. And you know, this is this was back when the Motorola StarTAC phone was the thing, which I had one, and it was a flip phone. You know, that opened like Star Trek, <laughs> and so I answered it and uh you know he was telling me his whole life story before he even said hello and uh so I I said look you know I'm on my way home I'll call you when I get home because it's noisy and he said fine so we hung up I got home said hi the kids and went into my library to call him back and I rang the same number that called and it was a fax machine and so he had told me that he was this very wealthy internet entrepreneur and I thought Oh, okay, sure. <laughs> I waited about 20 minutes and the phone rang again. And he was very angry this time and wanted to know why I didn't call him back. And I said, Well, you know, I did. And I got your fax machine. And he said, Oh, I'm sorry. And this is my mobile number and all that stuff. So you know, he proceeded to tell me the whole story about, you know, how he had made money on this thing called PayPal, which I'd never heard of. And he uh, would rather blow it going to Mars than to spend it sitting on a beach in in the Caribbean you know drinking Mai Tais and uh that he was willing to spend 100 million dollars of his net worth on this and and you know he he had it all worked out in his head and uh he he said he was calling me because he wanted to buy Russian Rockets and I was the only one that he'd heard of that could actually help him do that and uh he wanted to buy Russian Rockets because they were cheap he could afford them, and so I said, "Yeah, I can help you." He said, "Great, I'll be there tomorrow." And I'm thinking, "No, you won't. <laughs> I don't know who you are. You're not coming here with my my family, but I will. Uh, I'll meet you at Salt Lake City Airport behind the security. This is pre 9 11, so you could go behind security without a ticket. And I figured that way he couldn't uh, pack a weapon to get back there, and there were police nearby in case this guy was a
0: lunatic. Teresa Trenakas and Jim Cantrell. Elon Reeve Musk only became a U.S. citizen in 2002. He was born in South Africa to Errol and May Musk in 1971. He is Randy Kirk again.
1: So by age 12, he had sold a game for $500. And uh, it was successful as a product. But he was entrepreneurial in those early days. But he was also not very big. His autism, but he's now, you know, acknowledged that he's, he has Asperger's and his, his autism probably made him enough of an oddball that his, he was bullied quite badly by upperclassmen at one point where he was pushed down some concrete stairs uh, and then, bullied, and then uh, beat up. And uh, it was quite uh, a critical situation. It left him badly hurt. So he was already bookish. And if you're bookish and being bullied, then you become more bookish. <laughs> and so he was reading everything in sight. So that was one side of his, of, his, of his early life. The other side of his early life was that his dad would have periods of substantial wealth, had a private plane. They would take exotic vacations of flying here and there on the plane.
0: When he was eight, his parents divorced and Elon decided to live with his dad, but they are now estranged. And here's how Elon recalls his father these days.
5: You have no idea
0: how bad. Almost every crime you can possibly think of, he had done. Almost
4: every evil thing you could possibly think of, he has done. It's so terrible, you can't believe it.
0: The words of Elon Musk, read by Alex Cobb. The young Elon Musk had few friends and spent a lot of his time alone reading sci-fi. Musk left South Africa for North America and graduated from the Ivy League University of Pennsylvania. From there, he made his way straight to Silicon Valley, where he started an internet city guide called Zip2 with his brother Kimball, using $28,000 from dad. It was 1995, and the internet
1: was slow and new. Zip2 is having a hard time. Randy Kirk. He needs individuals like you and me to use the app to be aware of the app to be able to find a restaurant at the same time he needs restaurants to sign up and agree to be on the app in order to have revenue but the restaurants don't want to be on the app if there's nobody looking up that restaurant (laughs) on the app so it's a big chicken and egg problem and so his brother actually i think uh, started contacting local newspapers and yellow pages to see if they could put together some kind of uh, partnerships that would allow them uh, to utilize this new system by proving to them that the the Yellow Pages was the past and that this was the future. They should get on board and partner with them to be able to scale up the numbers of people that would be on this app uh, so that people would start using it. And this was a very difficult task. Uh, didn't work for a while, nobody was interested, but eventually, they were successful. When Zip2
0: was sold in 1999, Elon walked away with $22 million. At that point, he could have retired to a sun lounger and chilled out. But he's a workaholic. Instead, he decided he was going to reinvent banking, and later that year founded XCOM, which became PayPal. When that was sold, three years later, Musk trousered a fairly respectable $175.8 million. But by that stage, he had been forced out by a board of directors who had no confidence in his ability to run the company.
2: The HR people said, look, we like you. You know, you've done really well in this interview so far. you passed the panel. When you talk to Elon, make sure you do not use any acronyms because you will be dead on the spot if you use any acronyms.
0: Arby Tripathi is now the director of operations at the Space Sciences Lab at the University of California in Berkeley, but was mission director of SpaceX, and before that, a rocket engineer at NASA.
2: He asked me what I thought about a very specific technology called a VASIMIR engine. Um, this is a, an electric pro- propulsion engine that an engineering team um, in the Houston area was developing as a means to get to Mars. And I said to him, Oh, boy. Um, I, I, you know, I'm familiar with the technology. I think it's a good technology. I personally don't think it's the right technology for Mars. I think it might be a better technology for uh, the um, outer planets. And, you know, I I hoped he agreed with me, because if he didn't, that would have been the end of my, my interview, and I probably wouldn't have gotten a job there. But he said, I agree with you and that's my thoughts as well. And the interview lasted about another minute after that.
1: There's only so many great engineers graduating every year from our engineering institutions. SpaceX and Tesla are the number one and number two choices of those engineering graduates for where they wanna go work. So if you are a manufacturer in high tech and you know that the number one place that graduating engineers want to go to work is your company. It gives you a huge opportunity to continue to grow your mission and achieve your goals.
4: I think, and this is, if you look at the trend right now in in human resources you know people talk about hiring for talent and not for skills anymore and i think he was doing that as well back then you know you uh, I, except for the very specialized people where you needed to have experience obviously in a certain domain he was looking for people like himself at the time or well, at least i was uh, someone like that i was back then 23 24 years old um i had been working for uh, you know two three years already but very driven and ambitious. And uh, I I did, I'm also a big uh, space geek. So <laughs> that worked as well for him.
0: That was Arbitrary Party, Randy Kirk, and Teresa Tanakas. When Musk bought Twitter, he rather gleefully sacked about 50% of the staff. So, what's Elon Musk like as a boss?
2: He's definitely not knowledgeable about everything, but he has an intellectual curiosity about everything. And make sure he puts very technically competent people in charge of, of everything. Oftentimes at the expense of being what might be considered by most as a traditional good manager in Elon's companies. And well, I can speak mostly for SpaceX. Um, how well you technically understand and drive the project is more important than all the other traditional manager skills. And I think that's, uh, definitely one of, you know, his, um, secret ingredients. As far as how people interact with him, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm being, you know, mean or insulting when I say he's a, he's a little bit of a quirky guy. So, you know, you're there for a reason. You're there to explain something or get feedback from him. And so, you know, conversations were more business and less, I would say, you know, collegial
4: working with elon is definitely not easy because he's extremely demanding he's extremely demanding he's extremely tough he doesn't take no for an answer he's uh, you know he doesn't believe that there's you know uh, it, ca- it can't be done does not exist i mean he's always pushing the boundaries and he's um, you know he's he believes that there's always a solution to a problem And, um, it's, it's not an an easy job and it's not a nine to five job as you, as you well know, because he's mentioned this many times, you know, if you want to change the world and change the status quo that can be done during regular business hours, you know, it really needs a, a strong commitment on his part as a leader and also on the people following that dream. Um, and yes, he has that capability, you know, to to drive, to drive people, and to motivate them. Even though he's an extremely, you know, demanding leader, but he's also fair. Uh, he's also fair, and he doesn't make it personal.
0: It always feels personal when you're fired, and Musk has a reputation for firing on the spot if you don't step up to the serious challenges he sets.
2: The number one thing I really learned about myself, and also um, advice that could go to other entrepreneurs is you know, the concept of extreme accountability. Um, in, in most companies, when you are the responsible engineer for something, uh, uh, the acronym is RE, when you are the responsible engineer or RE, you are wholly responsible for that thing. I mean, you, I don't care if you're an intern, you will be able to brief Elon directly because you are the responsible engineer for some critical thing. There's extreme accountability. Um, I learned that I'm I was capable of of picking up skills that I never thought I would be able to learn at a rapid pace. Um, there's a lot of trial by fire um, at SpaceX, where <clears throat> you know, especially in the early days, it's like, "Hey, do you know about this thing?" And the answer would invariably be, "No." Well, nobody else does either. Can you go figure it out? <laughs> and I'd be like, "Okay, let me go figure it out." You, you just get thrown into it. And and so I I learned definitely that if people just clear a path for you and say, hey, that's yours, go figure it out. You are capable of achieving a lot of things you thought you didn't have the background for or the ability to do. And, and, And that little boost of confidence stays with you forever.
0: Elon Musk's SpaceX company plans to launch a manned expedition to Mars in 2029. But in the early days of his space exploration mission, he couldn't even buy a rocket. Jim Cantrell had high level contacts in Russia after a career in industry and the U.S. Department of Defense.
3: And we took along Mike Griffin, who later became the NASA administrator, but he at that time was uh, consulting. And we went over there on this last trip, tried to buy the rockets. The Russians were very um, dismissive of Elon, which, you know, historically is very ironic because had they not been dismissive of him and cooperated with him, he probably wouldn't have wanted to build SpaceX and may not have uh, put them out of the commercial launch business. But as it turned out, you know, he, he he was young, he was in his late late twenties. They talked amongst themselves, not knowing I understood what they were saying and called him a little boy and other things like that. And in one case spit on Elon's shoes and mine both. And and so we, we ended up without a deal and, uh, on our way back to the U.S., and Mike and I were sitting up there enjoying some whiskey to celebrate. And Elon's in front of us, and uh, there weren't many people on the plane. And he's tapping away on his computer. And uh, Mike, who was the son of a uh, army colonel, so he speaks pretty roughly. You know, he, he elbows me and he said with a loud enough voice that Elon could hear, and it was deliberate. He said, "What do you think that asshole's doing up there, uh, working so hard?" And I he said, I think he called him an idiot savant as well. And I, I said, I said, well, I think he's probably come up with plan nine to save humanity. And Elon turns around and he, he looks at us. He says, fuck you both. He says, uh, he says, I think we're going to build this rocket ourselves. And Mike looked at me and I looked at Mike and Mike's eyebrows raised. And he said,
0: you and whose army? Many in the higher reaches of the American establishment assumed you needed to be an army to get into space, which is why Musk's eventual competitor to fly rockets into orbit is Northrop Grumman, the arms manufacturing giant. Anyway, since the Russians had refused to let him buy some rockets off the shelf, Musk had decided to design and build them from scratch. In just five years, they launched their first rocket from Musk's own Pacific Island. But Falcon 1 blew up after just 30 seconds in the air. Despite this humiliating failure, NASA awarded Musk a contract to build space vehicles to supply the International Space Station with staff and cargo. Perhaps it helped that NASA boss Mike Griffin had been a paid consultant to SpaceX in its early days. Griffin may well have been worried when Musk's next two rockets also crashed back to Earth before they'd reached orbit. Then, in September 2008, success.
5: One, SpaceX Falcon has cleared the tower. The
0: Falcon 1 became the first ever privately developed vehicle to go into Earth orbit. NASA subsequently stumped up 1.6 billion US dollars to SpaceX for 12 supply flights. I believe he will be responsible for the first of mankind to step foot
3: on Mars. Jim Cantrell again. I've known that from day one, that I worked with him, that his whole idea was to put humans on Mars and to start a Mars base. It's a backup plan for Earth, as he used to call it. It was like talking about aliens, really. <laughs> These Mars-based ideas. But now it's a very acceptable thing, right? And so I do believe that his businesses are all connected together in this ultimate objective of going to Mars, and I'm, I'm probably alone in thinking this, but you know, you look at SpaceX, and he, he clearly states it now. I've known it for 20 years, you know, Boeing and some of these big companies in the early days, when they started becoming successful, they scratched their heads, and, and they, they would consult with me and ask me, what's in this guy's head? And I say, he just wants to go to Mars, and they never believed
0: me. You're listening to Global Disruptors. Stay tuned as we uncover more about the life and career of Elon Musk.
1: This Radio. Elon Musk truly believes that his mission on this planet is to leave it better than
2: he found it. Self-taught people, provided they ask really good questions and really understand the answers, can do amazing things.
1: If you're sitting with $180 million in your pocket and you spend all of it to start a space company and a car company, and you think that both of them have a 10% chance of survival, that would be an indicator that you're really more interested in your mission than you are in money.
4: Trying to find a solution together, setting the right expectations, you know, uh, he, he just doesn't have patience for excuses.
1: He talks about the influences of Isaac Asimov and others in terms of creating his world viewpoint and the reasons why he is so driven to make a positive impact on human civilization.
0: Hi, this is Rod Little, and you're listening to Global Disruptors, uncovering the world's most successful entrepreneurs. What's he
3: passionate about? Three things he told me. One making humanity a multi-planetary species, number two to get humanity off the addiction to fossil fuels, and number three was to prevent tyranny from claiming our freedoms and our freedom of speech so you see that final chapter with him on twitter and we'll see how he is at the uh, social media business
0: in 2004 musk invested six million dollars in a small electric car company and became chairman it's cool sports car got great reviews from dyed-in-the-wool petrol heads but when they moved into the mass market saloon car business tesla's losses became life-threatening in seven years, the losses stood at around $290 million. Thousands had put down money for a new car on a promise from Musk, but this created a backlog of orders they didn't have the capacity to fulfil. Musk was reduced to pleading with them to pay extra for cars they'd already ordered. In 2010, Musk decided to finance the expansion with a stock market flotation to the amusement of many in the established car industry and financial pundits who thought it was doomed to failure. But Tesla shares were a huge hit, and Musk raised $2.2 billion. His big gamble had paid off. The company still struggled, but by March 2013, Tesla had moved into profit.
1: With regard to President Obama's 2010 plan, I have yet to find a person in NASA, the Defense Department, the Air Force, the National Academies, industry or academia that had any knowledge of the plan prior to its announcement.
0: At the same time as Tesla was at a turning point, so was SpaceX. Former astronauts and American icons Neil Armstrong and Gene Cernan both criticized SpaceX in testimony to Congress.
1: I support the encouragement of newcomers toward their goal of lower cost access to space. But having cut my teeth in rockets more than 50 years ago, I am not confident.
3: Now is the time for wiser heads in Congress of the United States to prevail.
0: Musk was tearful on camera when interviewed about his heroes not backing his dream. They joined others who doubted that relatively small businesses could do better than NASA. Meanwhile, talented young rocket scientists like Arby Tripathi believed the Musk dream and were leaving NASA to join SpaceX. He found it a big culture shock.
2: Oh boy. (laughs) When I first got there, I thought, I'm in over my head. I've taken the wrong job. I've made the wrong decision because... It, N- NASA is a very rules-based organization. It has a very systemic bureaucracy, and everyone knows how you advance over the years or how you don't advance. Whereas when you go to a startup, and especially a startup that hasn't you know, quite really made it yet, it's the Wild West. And there's a lot of work, and you're not only going to do what you were hired for, You are going to do anything you need to do to keep the company solvent. The type of people that work there, at least I found, are always people that no matter how capable they appear to others from the outside, kind of work with a chip on their shoulder. Um, Always feel that they're not good enough or maybe have even imposter syndrome and are just absolutely driven um, by the environment they're in, you know, I, I, Elon makes this analogy and I, I feel uncomfortable sometimes because because of the analogy, but he he often compares people at SpaceX to like a SEAL team, right, which is a elite military team. And I think where the comparison makes sense is that in, in, a, in a military team like that, you're not just working for um, the goal, you know, you're not just working to, I don't know, go extract some hostages or whatever. You're working because you're also trying to be there for the rest of your team. You want to, you, you operate almost like a hive mind. And I saw a lot of that at SpaceX, where, you know, you really wanted to impress the other people on your team because you saw how, how hard they were, were working for the same goal as you.
0: Mars is a hostile place to try to live. Elton was right. It ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. You'd quickly die of asphyxiation because there's so little oxygen. Your blood would boil inside you because atmospheric pressure is so low. Then your dead body would be fried by cosmic radiation and frozen in temperatures similar to Antarctica. Getting there would take around six months with current technology, and astronauts would suffer a significant added risk of cancer due to radiation exposure on the trip. Some have asked if Musk might use his money and expertise to improve our chances of survival on this planet instead.
2: When I was at UCLA and I studied micropaleontology, I saw that the Earth has been through five or six mass extinction events by now. And so, sure, we should take care of the Earth. And there are lots of people doing that. Lots of people even that left SpaceX went on to go into climate change companies or or even founding climate change companies, right? So by no means do I see this as a zero-sum game. What what I believe, though, and I think what Musk believes is that why not maximize humanity's chances to survive whatever is in front of us that may lead to a mass extinction event? If you make humans a multi-planetary species, you now have your eggs in at least a couple more baskets. And it's not a zero-sum game. It's more of a you know, let's let's manage our human portfolio a little bit better and maximize our chances for sur- survival as a species.
0: Isn't Elon's mission to get mankind on Mars the obsession of a super-rich sci-fi reading child? And aren't we seeing that irrationality in the chaotic way he's running Twitter? Elisa Cohn thinks the signs are not good.
5: Has he done some things that we coaches and we leadership experts would recommend against? Yes. You Know coming into a company very quickly, firing a whole bunch of people, it sounded like again, I, I'm I and most people are not privy to what's really going on inside, so I just want to acknowledge that. But does it seem to be chaotic on the inside? Yeah, and could it have been more orderly? Probably he's got a little bit overly
4: confident, and um. Lost track of reality. Even around Tesla, there was a, a some time when you know whatever he was saying on Twitter, and then you saw fluctuations in the stock uh, price of of the company. So uh, you know this this can be a dangerous weapon, and I think at some point. He's not reusing it in the right way. Obviously, he's a very stubborn man and very uh, strong-willed. So he really does what he believes. And I don't always, I don't think he always does the right decisions in terms of communication and media anymore. So there's always a plan behind everything, or there used to be. But I just think he doesn't understand so much the impact that this now has on too many people's lives at this point, you know, and he wants to have a positive impact. But the way he does things nowadays, he, he does disrupt a lot of, you know, people's lives, and, uh, and I think that has gone a little bit, you know, off the wall.
0: Former SpaceX spokeswoman Teresa Tanakis musk created by chancel design a public image that has promoted tesla spacex and his other projects so how much damage has the controversial takeover of twitter done to this brand you
3: know ferrari has its cult maserati has its cult we'll put up with anything that modena and and Marinello will put out because they're the holy ones right well elon created the same thing with the tesla buyers who at least in the early days were really holy warriors for electric cars we used to call them Elon fanboys so these people that would think that Elon could do no wrong and Tesla was you know buying one was a sign of supporting Elon and all that he supposedly stood for and I think people read in a lot to what he was really standing for by the fact he produced electric cars and now that he's bought Twitter and is standing up for what he believes is free speech uh, he's created a huge set of enemies, and many of these enemies are the same ones who will buy their their Teslas. So it'll be interesting to see how the Tesla stands the test of time, given now that Elon is considered a political enemy by a certain political class. And uh, in a way, I feel sorry for him, and in another way, I, uh, I, I I actually think he'll survive this. He's He's shown me that he can survive some pretty nasty situations.
0: Nonetheless, it's, it's, it's entertaining. British caving expert Vernon Unsworth doesn't find Elon Musk entertaining. Vernon risked his life leading the team that rescued 12 young boys and their football coach from a cave system in Thailand in 2018. In a sticky submarine where it hurts, just had
1: absolutely no chance of, of working. He had no no conception of what the cave passage was
0: When he made fun of Musk's ill-conceived attempts to help by sending a submarine which would have got stuck at the first underwater bend, Musk called him a pedo-guy. Musk later deleted the tweets and apologised to Unsworth, who unsuccessfully sued for defamation. Vernon went toe-to-toe with a billionaire bully. Not many people have the courage to do that.
4: He changed the auto industry, he changed the space industry, who knows now he's going to change the social media industry as well. So he's clearly a disruptor. He's clearly a very brilliant man and a visionary. I I believe we have a lot to learn from him, everybody that has worked with him or, you know, he's inspiring a lot of people. And I think that's true. But we also have to keep in sight that he is human, <laughs> you know, a lot of people, you know, yes, put him up there on the pedestal. He is human. And as at every human like you and me, he has faults and uh, he makes mistakes many times. Most of the times he admits that he makes also mistakes <laughs> and which they are. And we have to uh, admire that bravery. And that's also part of the leadership, you know, yes, making mistakes along the way.
2: Having worked with him for 10 years, my feeling of having interacted with him with so many years is that he really doesn't care at all about money. He cares about, you know, doing something great. Now, is what is considered great, in his view, uh, always correct and not sometimes misplaced? Probably not. Um, I think some of the things he thinks are great, I would agree with. Other things he thinks are worth doing in the world or, you know, among his other various businesses, I probably wouldn't. So um, much like most people, he's never going to bat 1000. But I do believe in his heart, he thinks he wants to make the world a better place. And that is what motivates him um, uh, to do some of his various uh, endeavors.
4: From day one, when he founded this company, he had a clear vision as as to where he wants to be with with SpaceX and what's what's the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is to bring people to Mars. This is the ultimate goal. And what are the steps towards getting there? Well, he also had a a plan from that time. So 20 years ago, he, he always had a plan. In place of how to get there. It took longer than he expected, I know, and it takes longer than expected. But obviously, we're talking about a very complex industry and a very complex goal to achieve. And I appreciate that not only he had that clear vision where he wants to be and what are the steps to go there, but he also had the perseverance not to give up because there were many hurdles along the way. That's something that we all all entrepreneurs can learn from, you know, this consistency and perseverance. You know, don't give up on your goals. Keep keep going at it.
0: Former Musk employees Teresa Tanakas and Arby Tripathi.
1: Uh, Jeff Bezos,
0: When Donald Super Trump was elected to power in 2016, he gathered some of the big beasts of American business around a table.
1: Uh, Elon Musk, is CEO of SpaceX and Tesla, building uh, rockets and cars. And-
0: by inviting the media to witness this meeting, Trump was saying he was backing big business. Well, I just want to thank everybody. This is a truly amazing group of people. But he was also keen to, hear, how, to harness the to cult like power of you Musk, Bezos et al. There's nobody like you in the world. You're in the
2: world, there's nobody like the people in this room.
5: I do think that sort of famous entrepreneurs are helpful in terms of what we can learn from them. Um, I worry that people look up to sort of the bad behavior of the entrepreneur as an excuse to not develop their own skills. And I would say, you know, Travis and Elon and and, and Jeff Bezos and certainly Steve Jobs, who's always had that role, are once-in-a-generation founders. And you're probably not, <laughs> so it would be helpful for you to develop the right skills of leadership and management to help you grow your company um, because it's not easy and you need people on your side to be able to do it.
0: That was Elisa Cohn, author of From Startup to Grown Up.
1: I don't normally have fan interest. I'm not the one who goes up to the restaurant, jumping over there to get the autograph or take a picture with them. So uh, Elon's one of my exceptions. <laughs> I just admire him. I just admire the things he does and the way he does them. So why is there such a fandom around him? It's because he has a clear vision that, he, that he's put into a mission, which he can communicate, which people say, I'm, I'm interested in that mission. I want to be a part of it in some way. How can, I, how can I join in? Can I be an investor? Can I be a customer? Can I be an employee? Most of the fans that I know of Elon Musk, if they got a phone call tomorrow about becoming an employee at SpaceX or at at Tesla or any of the companies, they'd be like, yeah, sign me up. I'll quit what I'm doing. That includes me.
0: <laughs> Randy Kirk would join Elon, but not everyone who's worked with him is positive about the experience. Musk doesn't like being told he's wrong. Don't doubt his dream. Jim Cantrell quickly went from a key colleague to persona non grata when he told Musk something he didn't want to hear.
3: He, he and I had a number of discussions in the early days of Tesla, and he knew, you know, that I had an interest in cars and some background in cars and so on. And he was. Uh, i guess they had just removed martin eberhardt who was the founder of tesla as ceo and he was looking for a ceo i want to know if i knew anybody and um but uh, you know 10 years ago electric cars were very new and it was a technology that was not proven out you know it worked but there's a lot of you know teething pains that are going to happen with it i i told him i said look you know i understand what you're trying to do but i really think it's premature and I pointed out that these kind of new technologies are not gonna be well tolerated by the buying public and as a whole in the United States. And I use the example of Maseratis and Ferraris, which I was familiar with buying and running. Uh, they take a particular owner, right? Because they're expensive to buy, they're expensive to maintain, and they often have very bizarre things go wrong with them because they're limited production. So you don't get the, you know, millions of cars to find all the design flaws in time to correct them, you know, as a consumer product. Uh, you know, and I said, as a guy like me would be tolerant of that. Um, and, but, a a consumer like my mother, the first time it pissed her off, she'd set it fire in the driveway and then call you and tell you, you had a lemon and sue you. And, uh, He got very upset at my remark and uh, told me I didn't know anything about the auto industry. And uh, to that point, you know, he'd always referred to me as a co-founder of SpaceX. And then he revoked it at that point and said, you're no longer a co-founder of SpaceX, or you never were, I think he said. And, uh, you know, to hell with you, basically. He never responded to my emails after that. And, uh, you know, later we had episodes where he started to Claimed that he didn't know me, never worked for him, and he sent lawyers after me. And uh, I said to the lawyers, "Gee, um, that's funny that I've got, you know, my employment agreement with his signature on it. I've got emails between us. I've got um, contracts for SpaceX where I signed it. I've got filings to the Internal Revenue Service here in the U.S. So here's the copy. Of it. what do you think now?" And the lawyers go quiet. Uh, maybe he doesn't like the fact that I talk you know, to the press about him, and I don't do it for the attention. I do it because I believe he's a historical figure, and I think that the story needs to be told. Um, I'm very close to giving my last interview on Elon, so you're one of the very last ones. Uh, as my book covers my story with him, You know, once it's in print, I'll cease uh, giving interviews, but I think it's insightful
0: to what I think is a very important
3: person in history.
0: Your verdict on Elon Musk may be a consequence of where you stand politically, because Elon Musk has become yet another component of the culture wars, and everybody dutifully takes a side. But the politics apart, I find it hard not to admire the chutzpah, imagination, and sometimes monomaniacal determination with which Musk has pursued what to many would be the unlikeliest of dreams. And yet, by the same token, if that determination has been the key to his success, Musk's unwavering certitude that he is always, unequivocally, right, has led him to make the most catastrophic business decisions. It is almost a truism that great entrepreneurs are unconventional, but the greatest of all understand that their instincts can sometimes be flawed, and that you must pick your fights with the establishment carefully, with a little rigour and discernment. And I won't be going to Mars anytime soon. I'm Rod Little. Global Disruptors is a perfectly normal production for Disrupt Radio. Original music by Chris O'Shaughnessy. The series producer is David Morley. This edition was produced by Chris Ansill.
1: Disrupts Radio.
4: On Disrupt Radio, you'll hear
0: Megan Flamer and Alan Jones. You have a theory about accelerator programs. Yes, we've been through, well, we've mentored and coached in a few accelerator programs. Just a few. (laughs) Over the years.
4: Whether you're just starting out or figuring out your next stage of growth, the advisory board is here to lend a helping hand. Like, what are the blind spots that we have? What are the things that you just don't know. Megan Flamer and Alan Jones have helped thousands of founders, CEOs and organisations all over the world take their lives and
5: businesses to the next level. How are the startup ecosystems different around the world? The advisory board. If they're a casual employee, their minimum entitlements will be different to somebody that's permanent, for example. Live on DAB+.
2: I have to be prepared to, to take constructive criticism and take it on board and listen to it and you know incorporate it.
4: Online and
5: on demand at Disrupt.radio.